We have seen so far that in the last years of Edward IV's reign, his grip upon the kingdom was secure and he faced few, if any, serious threats. In the defence of the realm and the ruling of the kingdom, he relied heavily upon certain key individuals. His brother, Gloucester, his brother-in-law, Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers, Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, Thomas Lord Stanley, Thomas Grey, Marquis of Dorset, Queen's son, William Lord Hastings, and John Lord Howard. These men held considerable power and had a vested interest in the continuation of their privileged positions. Such is the way of the world that when a new reign beckons, we often find some men gravitating towards the heir to prepare the way not just for his smooth succession, but theirs as well. The problem with 1483 is that a new reign was not beckoning. It was not even thinking about beckoning. Indeed, the beckoning hand was still firmly in the beckoning pocket. The heir to the throne was Edward, Prince of Wales, a 12-year-old who spent most of his time at Ludlow, except for the odd state occasion and, of course, weddings and funerals. So if you have a 12-year-old nephew, or, or niece I suppose, who you only come across at family weddings and funerals, you might think how little you actually know about that child. And of course, we know even less about Prince Edward. He was really quite isolated, and I think his father saw that as generally a good thing. He did not want every Tom, Dick and Courtier trying to insinuate themselves into the young heir's life beyond those who had been involved in his household and council for some years. However, this isolation and his association with Rivers and his half-brother Richard Grey was to backfire spectacularly later in 1483. But I'm getting ahead of myself. It's time, I think, to take a closer look at young Edward, a far too often ignored figure, I might add because how Edward reacted in the crisis of 1483 would have a considerable bearing on how events turned out. His reign would be very short, indeed his whole life was pretty short, and thus few words are wasted upon him. What's the point, it might be asked, when he had such little impact on life and politics in 15th century England? After all, there were plenty of figures more interesting and influential than young Edward. The only aspect of Edward's life that has been endlessly debated was the abrupt end to it. In my view, this is not the most important thing Edward has to tell us. Anyone who has ever brought up a child and seen them through their formative years knows that this is not an easy task. It certainly was not easy in medieval times either, especially when you were raising a future king. The man given responsibility for this great task was Earl Rivers, and I have discussed his appointment before, it still seems to me a very sensible one. If we are to judge Rivers on how well he carried out the task he was given, then there is enough contemporary evidence to suggest that young Edward was well-educated, responsible and in possession of a strong personality. In short, Rivers did a pretty good job. Actually, as we'll see later, he did too good a job. How are we to form any sort of impression about this boy? I expect that if you ask most people who Edward was, 
without mentioning the phrase the prince is in the tower, they would be hard pressed to identify him, let alone tell you anything specific about him. But if they do know one thing about him, it might be that he was a poor, innocent child, a pawn in the hands of others. The most enduring image of Edward comes from the Victorian artist John Everett Millet, and it depicts a young, innocent and vulnerable boy. As I see it, this timid image is a travesty which serves only to obscure further the nature of a boy who has made little enough of an imprint on history as it is. I've used it as the artwork for this podcast simply so that you can see it if you're not familiar with it. This romantic Victorian representation of the young prince is, I fear, an evisceration of the true Edward and a very unhelpful image for anyone trying to get to know this boy. When I began to research the life of Prince Edward, I found only a handful of mentions from the time he was born in the sanctuary of Westminster Abbey in December 1470 until his accession in 1483. I reckon I could list those mentions on a postage stamp. All right, perhaps a large postage stamp. But if we want to know what the boy was actually like or how he developed, we need to look at the evidence relating to the one place where he spent almost his entire life, his household at Ludlow. Here I must give much credit to Nicholas Orme, a scholar who has shed much light upon the limited information we have about Edward's household. Only when I stumbled across Nicholas Orme's informative work on Edward's upbringing in his paper The Education of Edward V, did I begin to get a clearer picture of what this boy, Edward Prince of Wales, might have been like. Edward's household was established and governed by a set of ordinances, or rules if you like, issued in 1473 before the prince was even three years old. These ordinances basically laid out how Edward would be raised, his activities, his worship and his studies. The boy's day was closely regulated by the hour in a daily timetable. An entire household was created for Edward, led by several key Yorkist figures. Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers, as mentioned earlier, was to be the prince's governor, a new term for the role, incidentally. John Alcock, Bishop of Rochester, was to be Edward's spiritual guide and teacher, as well as the president of his council. And finally, Sir Thomas Vaughan, a staunch supporter of Edward IV, was his chamberlain, the man who controlled access to the prince. It is worth mentioning that these same key personnel were still around ten years later when Edward IV died. So what does all this tell us? It tells us that Prince Edward's first ten years were closely regulated. Now whilst that might have worked quite well in his early years, it seems to me that as the lad got older, so he might have started to resent the endless rigour of his day. I ask myself whether the son of the strong-willed and passionate Edward IV and the equally strong-willed Elizabeth Woodville might not have found this strict regimen a little irritating. But is there any evidence at all that young Edward rebelled against this regime as he neared his teens? Well, yes, there is. In February 1483, 
a revised set of ordinances or rules were issued by Edward IV. Now you might think that sounds sensible enough because clearly the rules for a three-year-old might not be appropriate for a 12-year-old. But the new ordinances included some rules that might fit very well into the instructions given by a modern parent to a teenager they have just grounded. For example, the prince was to be accompanied by at least two appropriate people all day, every day. He could not give any orders without the approval of Earl Rivers, Bishop Alcock or his half-brother Richard Grey. In addition, his servants were given strict instructions not to encourage the prince to act against the ordinances, in other words, break the rules. If the prince did break the rules, or acted in what is described as an unprincely manner, then these three men were to give him a warning, and if he persisted, they were to tell his parents as soon as possible. The new ordinances also seemed to tighten up on access not only to the prince, but to his household offices and the men who ran them. In addition, accounting for expenses was also to be more rigorous. Was there perhaps a concern that the prince had been rubbing shoulders here and there with some untrustworthy folk, and that the household had become a little too comfortable for its officials? It seems to me that it can only have been necessary to make the rules more strict if there had already been instances of the young prince breaking the old rules. What, a twelve-year-old boy bucking the system? Surely not. It is fascinating, of course, to read between the lines of such regulations, and we must be wary of drawing firm conclusions from such tiny fragments of evidence. Yet these ordinances, unlike almost every other tantalising fragment of evidence in the 15th century, are no one's opinion and have no bias. What then do the new ordinances tell us about the prince in 1483? For me, they confirm my opinion of the young lad. Not a pathetic little boy, but one on the verge of manhood, with strong views and an independent mind, like both his parents. Why does it matter? Because the personality of Edward was to be a vital factor in the events of April to July 1483. I have often pondered the question, as I'm sure many others have. If young Edward was such a pathetic little boy, why did Richard of Gloucester bother to take the throne at all? Surely he could simply have ruled through the child. The reality was that this was a son of Edward IV, a youth who did not want to be ruled by his uncle Gloucester or anyone else. There are, of course, many factors to take into account as we head towards the train crash that was April 1483. But one we must not overlook is the nature and personality of young Edward V.